Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And Will is currently traversing around Australia, so we're talking about Australian filmmakers. Or are they? I mean, we're talking about uh, probably the greatest Australian filmmaker, a man who, when I think Australian director, no joke, this is the first name I think of. It is Brian Trenchard Smith, folks. Even though he is... English. Boo. Just went to Australia because he couldn't get in the unions in England. Listen, if you direct BMX bandits, that makes you an Australian filmmaker in my books. The Bob Clark rule? <laughs> They're like, oh, Bob Clark is Canadian, right? It's like, no, technically he's not. Yeah. So Brian Trenchard Smith, though, if you're a fan of genre cinema, you probably saw Not Quite Hollywood, and he was a star of that documentary as a talking head. Like, he was there to tell you the stories, uh, you know, uh, show clips of the gory stuff that he's done in his films, action. Like, he's done it all, and he's continued to work, you know, from the 70s into the 2000s as well. He is a true journeyman in the sense that he's always found a niche for himself to keep pumping out work. So, I want to read just a little bit from an article I found on Talk house the title is how i swayed the 2004 presidential election with my pro bush 9-11 movie <laughs> bracket even though i'm a lefty bracket right in the lead up to the 2004 election he made a made for tv movie starring i believe timothy bottoms called dc 9-11 time of crisis which is basically like the nation's pride you know of, of the george w bush administration just a a complete hagiography early in the article he wrote for six months after making dc 9-11 time of crisis my agents had trouble getting me meetings with network executives i'm not hiring the guy that made the bush movie was one comment another said to me directly I can't forgive you for helping Bush get a second term. Critics praised or reviled it along party lines. He later goes on to explain why he made the film. He says, When Jerry Offsay, then Showtime's president of programming, calls you late at night and asks you to take over a movie shooting in two weeks because the director has fallen ill, you say yes, even if not a word of the script has been changed, because that was the deal Showtime had to make when acquiring the project, you say yes, regardless of your personal politics. You don't step aside when a man who greenlit three of your pre previous pictures comes to you with a problem. And I'll just read one last little bit here. He ends it by saying, despite my lifelong leftist voting record, I am not ashamed of taking on DC 9-11. I've served clients as diverse as Pentecostal Christians and a gay VOD channel. People other than hate groups are entitled to have their stories told. I'm a professional filmmaker. It's what I do. So right there, uh, you kind of have his M.O. I'll take whatever job is on the table. <laughs> and if you look at his career, even his big projects are like, someone dropped out at the last minute. We need somebody. Please take it over. If we're telling the listeners what movies of his they might have seen, well, possibly you've seen Leprechaun 4 in space. Possibly you've seen Leprechaun 3, uh, Night of the Demons 2. So it is, I think it's fair to say that it is a checkered filmography, but there are some really good ones in here too, including several films that have become very beloved. Yeah, like Man from Hong Kong, uh, Turkey Shoot, Frog Dreaming that stars Henry Thomas of E.T. fame has a lot of fans as well. A lot of those films, let's be honest, are early on in his career, but uh, things did get a little bit leaner in the 90s when it came to what feels like Brian Trenchard Smith's strengths, uh, genre fair. So people would probably be wondering, why are we talking about him? And I think it really comes down to 
1975's The Man from Hong Kong. God, I love this movie. It's so good. This, this movie kicks ass. I haven't seen enough of the Ozploitation movies, the Australian exploitation movies. To How make can this... they be better than this, though? Uh, th- th- like... like, this is it. And this is also the quintessential, the greatest, like, Hong Kong and another country co-production. Because usually when Hong Kong would do co-productions, what you get are uh, North Americans or the English thinking that they're better than them and then kind of dampening down what makes Hong Kong Hong Kong. While in this one, you have Brian Trenchard Smith who takes an on-screen role in one of the fights against Jimmy Wang Yu in an elevator and his pal and stuntman Grant Page pushing them as far as they possibly can. Like, there is not a boring moment in The Man from Hong Kong. It is just absolutely obsessed with giving the audience what the poster promises. And I think this speaks to Brian Trenchard Smith's strengths as a filmmaker. And I think that comes across a little bit in that Why I Made the George W. Bush movie article. He is a journeyman. He is a director for hire. And he takes that responsibility seriously. That's what he's about. You know who else was journeyman and would take jobs for hire all the time? John Frankenheimer, Richard Fleischer, John Badham. And they've made great movies as well. So, you know, everybody's got to work. Everybody's got to put food on the table. And the thing about Brian Trenchard Smith is that you never get the sense, whether you like the movie or not, that he is looking down on the production or looking to his crew members and going, listen, we've got to do this fast. Let's just friggin' do it and get out of here. So a little bit of background on him before we get back to the man from Hong Kong. He had a very normal, it's the same kind of life story that we often talk about on this podcast. Born in 1946, right after the Second World War, father was an RAF commander, uh, grew up, you know, making eight millimeter movies. He's another one of those edited trailers, worked at the local TV station as an editor. I think that editing trailers though, is very important because he did hundreds of them. And I think that that is the style that he brings to especially his early films. That when talking about his work and what are his preoccupations, he said that pace is something that he's very aware of and that he became aware of that editing trailers, that through the d- disparate images, you need to create a sense of momentum, especially if you're working with something that, uh, let's be honest, like the script isn't too hot. The Man from Hong Kong was his first feature-length fiction film. Before that, he made documentaries, including a documentary on martial arts performers. He went to Hong Kong, in fact, to make a film uh, that would feature Bruce Lee. But he uh, landed in Hong Kong the day that Bruce Lee died. But uh, Raymond Chow, I think that he was just impressed by some of the work that uh, Brian Trenchard Smith had. He did something for him as well. And you know, one thing led to the other, and Brian Trenchard Smith was the one to be in charge of the first Australian Hong Kong co-production, which ended up being The Man from Hong Kong in 1975. Well, with Bruce Lee dead, and I mean, you'll hear various reports, Bruce Lee had many projects, many potential projects on the go at the time of his passing, including the day that he died, he was supposed to have dinner with George Lazenby, the one-time James Bond, you know, uh, who George Lazenby came to Hong Kong essentially because uh, he blew all his Bond money. Just give me whatever you got. So he made Stoner with Angela Mao, and uh, he was supposed to be a villain in Game of Death, Bruce Lee's unfinished film. Instead, Bruce Lee passed away, and so they went to the next big star that would make an impact on an international audience, Jimmy Wang Yu of uh, the one-armed swordsman himself. In Bruce Lee's, you know, two years of superstardom, he and 
and Jimmy Wang Yu were great competitors, great rivals, by all accounts, truly hated each other. Bruce Lee, a, a true martial artist. Jimmy Wang Yu, a gymnast, an all-around athlete. Uh, Jimmy Wang Yu, a star before him, somebody who brought in, you know, essentially brought hand-to-hand combat to Chinese martial arts movies. His first directorial effort, The Chinese Boxer, which is one of the first open-handed action movies, rocks so much that, like, just stylistically and what he's doing with the camera and the way he's editing, like, rapid fire and just telling a story that I think that Jimmy Wang Yu as a director gets very undervalued, especially because, you know, after he pissed off the Shaw Brothers, he ended up in Taiwan where he was working with a lot less resources than he had before. And also, like Bruce Lee, Jimmy Wang Yu had a massive ego, (laughs) which led to, you know, some of the films that he made. Well, Jimmy Wang Yu was, uh, they called him the Steve McQueen of Hong Kong. That was his kind of affect. I mean, I do think Jimmy Wang Yu was a great director. As a screen presence, if you ask me, he's no Bruce Lee. You always say this when Jimmy Wang Yu comes up. And you know what? I'm going to put my foot down. I love Jimmy Wang Yu. Love to see him up on screen. You love Jimmy Wang Yu? I would take a Jimmy Wang Yu man from Hong Kong than a Bruce Lee film. Because those films overall are not that good except for Bruce Lee. I completely agree. Don't you wish Bruce Lee was in The Man from Hong Kong? But it wouldn't be The Man from Hong Kong if Bruce Lee was in it. There's absolutely no way he would not do the stuff that Jimmy Wang Yu does in this film. I just find Jimmy sometimes a bit of a wet blanket on screen that's my that's my complaint i would say that uh, usually when he's directing himself he's at his best and that he did a lot of movies where you know he can be a little bit tepid when he appears on screen but yeah is he as charismatic as bruce lee absolutely not is he putting it his all in his like kind of rubbery punches and kicks Yes, but when you're in the context of something like The Man from Hong Kong, where everything is so kind of like hyper-powered, I think it works because he's at the level of everything else. Well, I mean, I do have to concede the point that Jimmy Wang Yu was a broader all-around athlete than Bruce Lee was, uh, was, was more into like the acrobatic stunts and stuff like that. And getting back to The Man from Hong Kong, this is a movie that is practically nonstop action. I don't think Bruce Lee would have accepted that because that's not how he made his movies. Yeah. Like he would not, you know, be okay with all of this action and he would want his fights to be much, much shorter as well. Well, anyway, Jimmy Wang Yu uh, plays a Hong Kong detective in Australia. It opens with him arresting a drug trafficker played by a young Sammo Hung. Who, I think, did he work as a choreographer or just a stuntman on this picture? But he was, I think he was around. And by the way, one of Brian Trenchard Smith's strengths, you can see this in a in the commentaries he did for the trailers from Hell website, is he had a great appreciation for Hong Kong action cinema. Oh yeah, he loved Hong Kong action cinema. After Jimmy Wang Yu arrests Sammo Hung, the Australians basically want him out of the country. They're done with him. But instead, he wants to take down the entire drug cabal. He wants to go to the big man on top, played by Mr. 007 himself, George Lazenby. He wants to go to Sky High! That opening theme song of this movie. If you're, I mean, if you're into it, you'll love it. And a man, do I love that opening of like hang gliding and Jimmy Wang Yu like firing a gun set to the music. That is like Brian Trenchard Smith's trailer editing at full force. There's a lot of hang gliding in the movie. Uh, there's also just like a lot of action. So, I mean, the car chase that comes, you know, three quarters of the way through this movie is, I mean, it puts the bullet car chase to shame. Yes. <laughs> 
uh, just cars, cars going through buildings, cars going through billboards, a lot of really cool fight scenes like uh, Jimmy Wang Yu going against, you know, the whole dojo. Yeah, using all the weapons that are on the wall. Of course, the iconic fight between Jimmy and George Lazenby at the end, where, of course, Lazenby does his own stunts, falls backwards into a fiery, uh, into a fire pit, and then jumps back out with his coat, his jacket still on fire. Apparently, Lazenby got some very serious burns from that stunt. That's a bummer, because there should be no injuries when you do that kind of stuff. And you can see that he's kind of like gelled up as well as he like pulls his coat off and tosses it in the corner. Yeah, this movie is kind of actually what I want the James Bond movies to be. Yes, this movie is like the idea that a 12-year-old imagines what a James Bond movie is. Shamelessly entertaining, cool stuff just every 10 minutes. Jimmy is just all about like being cool and kicking ass and And i mean he has a huge ego too and like it was supposedly a difficulty on set you know brian trenger smith tells some stories and not quite hollywood but somehow he got a lot out of him you know he's the star of the movie he's doing all this stuff and trenger smith because he's pushing him forward unlike the directors on the james bond film who you know they like this material but they don't want to be crass or anything that has never bothered brian trenger smith he is just giving you it all and it works like you watch it now and it it's I can't imagine seeing this in 1975 when it came out. There's an interview on the Umbrella Blu-ray uh, with with uh, Brian Trenchard Smith, where he goes into great detail about his relationship with Jimmy Wang Yu. And I think he, he said something like, on the, the first night, the two of them went out on the town to sort of get to know each other. And uh, maybe this story is a little blue, folks, but uh, Brian was the one who went home with a girl and Jimmy Wang Yu wasn't. And uh, from that point on, uh, Jimmy Wang you uh, really hated Brian Trenchard Smith and <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't get along with him. But Brian Trenchard Smith also said that if he saw Jimmy Wang Yu today, which obviously he can't now because he's since passed away, but if he saw him today, he would be very happy to see him and might even hug him because the two of them shared an extraordinary experience, and experiences aren't often aren't always shared in harmony. Brian Trenchard Smith, after that, you would hope, like, oh man, that movie was wild. What's the next level that he's gonna get to? Eh, let me put the brakes on that. He never reached that level again, unfortunately. And like if you look at his filmography, there's a lot of cult movies that have gotten like big cult audiences, whether it be the subject matter or just the kind of like little scenes in it that really pop off, like Turkey Shoot. But when you hear Brian Trenchard Smith talk about them, they're often like very compromised productions that he really struggled with, which you don't get the sense of in something like The Man from Hong Kong. For example, uh, Stunt Rock, which came out in 1978 and is mostly about a rock band called Sorcery intercut with stunts done by Grant Page has an amazing trailer one of the greatest trailers of all time the movie though eh, it's not so hot it, it doesn't really have a sense of pace or you know it doesn't really build to anything and that's the unfortunate thing about it and I mean Brian Tyson Smith says it's a movie he like dislikes the most in his career but boy does it cut a cool trailer and just based on that like it keeps being released on Blu-ray people keep saying when can I see Stunt Rock even though that you know again the movie in my opinion doesn't deliver what I would want from it in the way that something like The Man from Hong Kong does. Well Stunt Rock yeah I mean people love it and Stunt Rock from 1978 is one of two movies that he made in the United States the other was Day of the Assassin from 1979. Yeah, which is another one that he took over from somebody else. Right. And this came after, you know, Man from Hong Kong was 75. There were a couple of, you know, action movies that he made and and as well as documentaries. He can he continued making documentaries throughout the 1970s. But in the in the 80s when he returned to Australia, that's when his if he has a golden age, that's when it began. 
Turkey Shoot is probably his most famous movie from that period. You watched that one, right? Not good. Really? Not good? People love Turkey Shoot. And I listened to his commentary afterwards, and Brian Trenchard Smith basically agrees with me. He's like, our budget and shooting time were cut in half, and so it's very austere, does not move very fast, deals more in misery than it does kind of like entertainment and fun, and is very violent. And Trenchard Smith said that he did that because he didn't really have the resources to do anything else, so he upped the violent quotient a little bit. I I shall say I'm not a big fan of prison movies, which is what it deals with for its first half before turning into the most dangerous game. But even the most dangerous game segment is just kind of like misery where you just see the people being hunted be killed one by one. And the kind of final payoffs aren't that hot. Now do all these sequences cut together to make an amazing trailer absolutely <laughs> like i feel like that's what people remember more than they do the movie the, the, itself okay well i'll tell you a movie that people remember 1983 a little movie called bmx bandits now i heard of this movie first well because it's one of i think it's the second film to star nicole kidman also Quentin Tarantino is quoted widely, you know, Tarantino is a great Brian Trenchard Smith fan, and he's quoted widely as saying, if if we grew up in Australia, this would have been our Goonies. I've always found that quote funny because Tarantino was 22 when the Goonies came out, but uh, his point his point is taken. Could you imagine being a kid watching this movie? I mean, I saw Surf Ninjas, which is, this is basically the movie, kind of like structurally, where it's a bunch of kids are chased by a bunch of like uh, doofus bad guys <laughs> throughout the landscape without any too much of a threat being presented. I gotta say, I love the movie Rad, which is about BMX bikes. BMX Bandits? Eh, I can give it or take it. Okay, I'm I'm surprised. I liked BMX Bandits quite a bit more than you did. I don't I mean I don't I don't think it's a masterpiece by any stretch. Not enough BMXing in my opinion. To me, no, I watched this movie and I thought, okay, this is the guy who made the man from Hong Kong. This is this is what's good about Brian Trenchard Smith. He's shamelessly entertaining. So this is a movie about three, uh, three teens, you know, not particularly cool, just three Australian teens who who love riding BMX bikes. And and that's basically their main character points. And there are villains. The movie opens with a bank robbery. The teens kind of get just entangled with the villains. Walkie talkies are involved and a wild chase then starts. Well, the one wild chase. Okay, yeah. And that's what's important here. Like. I, I was gonna I was gonna summarize the plot, but you don't need the plot summarized. What you need to know is there are bank robbers, there are BMX teens, and the whole second half of the movie is basically just one long chase. Uh, they're they're getting chased through like uh, you know restaurant patios and over hills and people you know falling into the water, construction sites of course, get, you know pies and faces and you know big big hoses with foamy water and a lot of wacky stunts and gags, and then. Then uh, all the other BMX kids get involved. So you've got like a huge Cecil B. DeMille crowd scene of of teens on on BMX bikes going after the baddies. And I'm watching that. I like, look, I'm an elderly man and I'm watching this and I'm thinking this is pretty fun. You keep saying that. You're not elderly. That when you become an actual elderly man. I'm so old. My back hurts all the time and uh, my knee hurts. And I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking, boy. I really wish I watched this movie when I was a kid because I would have been in ecstasy. There's so much going on. I would have loved this when I was a kid, but watching it as an adult, I hate to say it, but like I'm pretty bored for the first half of this movie Well, before they get to the big chase scene. My only counter to that was I think these three kids are quite charming, including, hang on, let me see if I have her name right here, Nicole Kidman. She doesn't look like the Nicole Kidman I know. She do- no, she doesn't. She doesn't look at all like the Nicole Kidman you know. She looks like a very normal teenager. <laughs> yes. uh, and, and, I, and I think she's, uh, I think she's 
delightful. And then the way this movie looks, this is another one of Brian Trenchard Smith's strengths. This is the most vibrant movie that you will ever see. Like it, they will, it will scorch your eyeballs. Also helped by the fact that the BMX bikers, their like costume and bikes are like all the colors of the rainbow. So like the skies are so blue, the grass is so green, the Australian landscapes. You know, seeing the uh, Pacific and or Antarctic Ocean in the background. I'm not, I'm not sure what we're looking at, but uh, you know, it's just just gorgeous. And yeah, like the the costumes. I don't know. Kid in a candy store watching uh, this again. I, I I couldn't help comparing it to something like Rad and unfairly unfairly the man from Hong Kong which Brian Trenchard Smith's career cannot live up to that. Well, I have another movie here that I watched that I think we'll probably agree on in thinking that it is okay. It, and it's one of his best known movies, Dead End Drive-In from 1986. I think this one, a lot of mileage is done just by the title and like the poster art where you're like, what is this? And they're like, oh, it's post-apocalyptic. You're like, oh, cool. They hang out in the drive-in where they like, you know, capture all criminals or, you know, they get stuck there. You're like, oh, Cool. And then they don't really do anything for an hour. Hmm, less cool, I would say. Yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. I mean, this is the movie that, uh, if Letterboxd is to be believed, is his most popular movie that is not a Leprechaun sequel. Wow. It's basically a Mad Max ripoff. It's a post-apocalyptic dystopia uh, set in the faraway year of 1995. It, there's a teenage couple who go to a drive-in movie and when they wake up the next morning they realize that it's actually a like prison camp and it's all about escaping this prison camp. Now the movie I think is a little bit slow paced. I mean there's some pretty weak sauce social commentary in here about how like oh the the cool young punks are actually racists. Uh I don't know, pretty lame I thought. Uh yeah. It's not paced the way that a Brian Trenchard Smith movie should be. I do think it gets a lot of mileage just from the visual style. Post-apocalyptic movies in the 80s just have all that neon and all that smoke. You know, you just kind of like living in them. Yeah, they just look all the movies during this time. It's almost impossible for them to not look good. Not saying that Brian Trenchard Smith doesn't bring stuff to them, but this is also the pervasive style that was being used at this time. And because he's working in such heightened genre stuff, it just pops right off the screen. I also did want watch the siege of firebase gloria which is his 1989 shot in the philippines war film starring arlie ermy and wings hauser i gotta say really good like real kind of like meat and potatoes war film doing all the cliches that you're you expect but he's seemingly working with a little bit more resources at his disposal and you get a kind of like grand sense that you very rarely get in his films because he's working with like lowering and lowering budgets as it goes along even though I should say, like, it's not like he wasn't striving for it because, you know, he moved to L.A., he wanted to do anything and everything, but those opportunities just didn't come to him. And because he just took everything, he said it himself, like, you know, whatever was thrown at him, he'd be like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. He worked a lot, but he also, you get the sense, couldn't do the passion projects that he really wanted. Yeah, so when he moved to Hollywood in the 90s, he said that when he was in Australia, I was possibly a medium-sized fish in one of cinema's smaller ponds, but when he moved to Hollywood, he immediately became plankton. <laughs> you can see that in his filmography. I mean, again, Night of the Demons 2, Leprechaun 4 in space. Hey, don't forget uh, the TV movie uh, Sahara, which is a remake of the Bogart film starring Jim Belucci, which is it's fine. It's good. You you watched Sahara. You watched his Sahara, yep, didn't you? It, it definitely feels like what it is, a TV movie. 
but you know, shot in Australia, so the desert is nice and big. Jim Belushi gives an okay performance. It's another siege film like uh, Firebase Gloria, and it, it works, and that's really all that it needs to do, and is very efficient in the way that it tells its story. It feels like there's a little bit something missing, probably coming from the TV budget, but it ends in a satisfying place. But I should also note that I haven't seen the original Sahara that much, so it could be a shot-for-shot remake for all I know, and I don't. I mean, I haven't dipped into his late career. I'm quite interested in 2009's Pimpin' Wee Wee, also known as Porky's. Pimp and Wee Wee. Oh, yes. That's right. A long gap uh, just to keep control of the rights sequel to Porky's uh, that is completely unrelated to the original. Again, you know, lots of uh, I mean, I, I think his most recent, you know, he 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 made a film with Cuba Gooding Jr. in 2013 called Absolute Deception. He made a movie more recently with uh, Thomas Jane and John Cusack called Drive well, Hard. More recently, 2014, which was almost 10 years ago. <laughs> I will say that Brian Treasure Smith is still a great talker. Like the trailers from Hell videos he does, every single one of them is worth watching. And he's a novelist now. That's I, seemingly what he spends most of his days with. That like that need to create and to do this kind of stuff continues in his blood. He just cannot give it up. And I love it about him. So yeah, if I were to sum up, why should you care about Brian Trenchard Smith? It's because A, he was the central figure probably, I think that's fair to say, in a very interesting moment in Australian film history. He was the central figure, you know, the most famous director of the Ozploitation boom. And you can uh, learn a lot about Australia through those movies. Uh, secondly, you should care about him because uh, he is a, a tireless, tireless journeyman who, when he was at his best, was the best kind of journeyman. As you said earlier, somebody who threw himself into his work, who did not condescend to the work, tried to make unpromising movies as good as they possibly could have been. Well, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. And as per usual, you can send us emails at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Bashir Aiden, and he goes, Hey, Justin and Will, hope you guys are doing well. I'm a recent new listener, and I've been enjoying going through your backlog of eps on filmmakers who are rarely talked about. I'm not sure if you've talked about him yet, but I wanted to know your thoughts on Terrence Nance and or the specific style of new black filmmaker, i.e. Jen Nikiru and Martine Sims. I've been a longtime fan of Nance's film, The Oversimplification of her beauty and his television show random acts of flyness i haven't seen a filmmaker with a style exactly like his and feel like he's creating the only groundbreaking stuff on television what do you guys think are there any other filmmakers before him who you find similar let me know thanks bashir well unfortunately bashir uh speaking for me i i'm not that familiar with him as a filmmaker in fact i don't think i've seen his tv show or the feature film that he directed yeah i'm sorry i have to respond in the same way i'm not as i'm not familiar with terrence nance even though i'm i'm familiar with his reputation well we're very familiar with the fact that he was supposed to direct space jam yeah so i saw somebody tweet this week i hope this is true that when terrence nance was working on space jam a new legacy of which he is still credited as an executive producer the original idea was that, like, it's like what they did with Joe Dante on Looney Tunes Back in Action, where the, the idea of the algorithm being the villain, like, it was supposed to be a joke about Warner Brothers is outsourcing all of their creative decisions to algorithms now. 
And then that was neutered because the studio wouldn't let them make a movie that was making fun of the studio. So the algorithm had to be like completely rogue. That's so funny that they only realize this while they're shooting. They're like, wait a minute. We haven't read the script for this giant tentpole movie. <laughs> oh, no. And then they just, you know, kick him to the curb and they get somebody else who will just follow orders, which is really funny that they would hire him, who's most famous for doing like very experimental stuff. I remember watching some of the things that he did when he was announced as a director because I was curious of like, oh, what else has he done? But I have not seen his feature films or his television series, which I will definitely check out. Can we put him on the list, though? Can this be a subject for a future episode? Yep, I'm going to put him on the list. I'm not even familiar with the other two directors that the letter mentioned. So I'm also going to add them to the list because I'm very interested in that. And I will be checking it out, going right on the letterbox watch list that I have, which unlike, you know, uh, some people I know, is actually pretty short because a movie is too long on that list. Out the door it goes. Uh, Justin, by some people he knows, is referring to me. My letterbox list Absolutely. is very long and is full of movies that I will never watch. I actually like, get tired of seeing a film on a watch list. And I go, listen, if I haven't watched it by now, I ain't watching it. So get out of there. I like when I watch a movie and then I go on Letterboxd and I find, oh, this was on my watch list, apparently. Do you ever look at your watch list for inspiration? Every now and then, yes. I, uh, yeah, I should look at it more and, and try to like cut through that kind of stuff and try to remind myself, why did I add this? I made this request to Letterboxd three years ago. If they could give me like a little note I could write on the watch list being like why I wrote this, why I'm interested in this. Because many of the films I, I'll add are like international films and I'll be like... I don't know what the point of interest for this was. I completely agree. Now, Justin, do you have any letters where I can flex some knowledge? Any letters where I can not say, oh, dear, I, I'm not familiar. Well, if we don't know anything, I'm hoping that like people who perhaps are like us will go look into these filmmakers. So that is a good uh, jumping off point. We have an interesting letter from Bradley Meek, and he goes, Hello, Important Cinema Club. First time, long time. I just wanted to thank you for expanding my understanding of cinema. Nah, I'm lying. I don't really watch movies. <laughs> I watch maybe a dozen movies a year and mostly just to hang out with friends. But I do enjoy your podcast. So if you've ever wondered, do just cinephiles weirdos like our podcast? The answer is no. Some podcast weirdos like it too. I've even be been a Patreon subscriber. It's fun to learn about cinema history and esoterica, even if I have no plans to watch anything myself. And you guys are great at critiquing and discussing the nuances of film. It's been great for many hours of entertainment, so thank you for that. Big twist. Note. You did get me to watch Don't Let the River Beast Get You, so there's How that. How about that? That's not bad. My question for you is, if you could watch only a dozen movies a year, what would you watch? How would you go about figuring out what to watch? Would you prioritize art films or fun movie? Bradley from Des Moines. Can we take it as a given, first of all, that pornography does not count as a real movie? Because I think I think I might <laughs> I think I might have to have a secret stash to get me through the year. If it's shot on film, it counts as a feature film. If it's not, then you're good. This is just for pornography. This does not affect narrative features. Okay, I can work with that. I can work with that. So yeah, oh man, that's a that's a difficult question. I think if it's just 12 movies a year, then that would mean I would have to radically reconfigure my relationship with cinema. It wouldn't be about discovery. I would only choose- What am I doing instead though? Like watching sports? Like what else is there to do? I mean, there's novels. You could read novels. You could be volunteering, putting yourself out in the world, helping it to be a better place. I think, yeah, I would choose things that are purely comfort watches. So I would probably like when I went on the plane a few weeks ago, when I went on a 15 hour flight, I would choose whatever I loaded on my uh, my hard drive just for that. So I would probably include like 
one or two Martin Scorsese movies, you know, something like Casino, you know, something that's just like really easy to watch, mm. uh, something like Goodfellas. Then I'd probably also put on some Abbott and Costello movies, and then I'd put on a couple of uh, Kung Fu movies. Yeah, one 35 millimeter porno, you know, for the long, <laughs> shake it up a little for bit. the long, lonely nights. For me, I don't know what I would watch. Like, I have movies that I really love, and I don't revisit them very often. Like, I very rarely go, ha, yes, my comfort movie. It's time for me to watch it. And I think principally because when I was young in my 20s, early 20s, I watched those movies too much for the specific reason that I was constantly having, because, you know, I'm such a Lothario, uh, girlfriends come over, and I'm like, well, let's watch this movie that I love. <laughs> Those have been burned now. Like, I've watched them too many times. And uh, do they have, like, does a movie like, I don't know, Army of Darkness or whatever whatever movies you were using to woo the opposite sex, uh, like, do they have bad associations now? Do you- no, not at all. No, so I'm very ha- I'm very happy about that. So, yeah, because the movies they kind of go over it, and uh, let's be honest, whoo, I can't even remember all the times we watched those movies. So I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I, when a man's racked up the body count that you have, I'm sure that that's that's a hundred what 150 to Wilt Chamberlain levels of viewings of Army of Darkness. And the thing about like comfort movies as well for me is that. I love new movies, and not specifically new movies that are coming out in theaters, new movies to me. There is so much stuff I have not seen, but is interesting to me because I like too much stuff, which is a weight I bear like Atlas holding up the the earth. It'd be nice if I only liked one or two things and I would just kind of, you know, go down that avenue, but I'm like, no, 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 give it all. I like it all. I I kind of wish I was a little bit more like that. I would say that my viewings are pretty much like 80% new stuff, 20% revisits. I think that's kind of what the ratio is because I do like revisiting things. I like... I mean, there are definitely plenty of movies that I've worn out over the years, and I feel sad about that. Like, I feel sad that, you know, Monty Python and the Holy Grail is completely worn out for me at this point. But then, you know, there are other movies like like, I don't know, one of the great pleasures, one of the one of the pleasures period of getting older is seeing how your relationship with art evolves you know things some things open up some things kind of fall by the wayside my go-to example is that ozu really only kind of started to mean something to me when i was in my late 20s and when i saw it in my you know teens ozu didn't mean anything to me at all so i don't know i i value uh, that that's kind of what i like about revisiting stuff i haven't seen monty python on the holy grail in so long i could just throw it on i feel and laugh anew even though i know every line by heart but i haven't seen it in a very long time well you know maybe uh, maybe we should watch it at some point did we do actually did we do a patreon I episode believe on that we movie? did do a patreon episode on that movie. i guess that means i can't watch uh, it i don't know if we watch it together though i think we watch it alone and maybe you didn't even watch it for that time because you're like i know this well enough i don't need to revisit it I mean, we could do a main episode on the monty python movies and we could do it as a marathon yeah we could definitely do that you don't seem enthusiastic about that prospect though do we have to start with the playboy one which is just them redoing old sketches god i mean some of those if i see the fucking dead parrot one more time i don't know i would love to watch life of brian again i haven't seen the meaning of life in ages that was the first monty python film i saw and I saw it a lot as well for some reason. You know, part of my motivation for asking this is because all those movies are worn out for me. And I think maybe it would be fun to watch it with someone else. Yeah. You know, m- maybe it'll open up in a new way. And then we can like quote it to each other. And then we're back in high school again. <laughs> we could put it on mute and we could do the dialogue. <laughs> Act it out as a place. Yeah. Because like, it's been so long that like I have that old Holy Grail, um, you know, that big black box that it came in oh, on yes. DVD like a million years ago. Yes. I've had no interest in picking it up and I'm sure the 30 blu-ray versions that have followed 
so uh, thank you very much for that letter. Uh, I hope you watch more movies. I'm glad you enjoy us uh, just talking about this kind of stuff. I'm curious to know what his 12 movies are. He says he watches 12 movies a year. Like, I'm, I'm curious, like, does he, are those 12 movies, like, new things that he explores? He says he watches them with friends. So is it just kind of like a go-to, like, party mix of, oh, I, I watch uh, uh, Marvel movies with my friends because, like, that's what my friends watch. Or, or I only watch uh, Goodfellas with my friends. Like, are there certain go-tos or... Like, does he or sir, sir, I'm asking you, the listener, uh, do you have like a movie club that meets 12 times a year where you find something new? <laughs> tell me tell me more about your viewing habits. I'm curious. And I'm guessing that he definitely came from Michael and us, which is, you know, probably the pipeline to the important cinema. Club. You know, what's great about you and me, Justin, is between us, we have we have so many podcasts that we're getting new fans from every direction Two four yeah you know i have to make it up for all the success that you know you political heads uh you're just listening to michael and us it's funny because like i follow most politics stuff too and i talk to will about it but i never get a chance to talk about it in the important cinema club um we can change that but the new co-host of the important cinema club luke savage the new co-host of michael and us justin oh my god the the world would be off its axis cats marrying dogs you know what's weird about podcasts for me is that if i listen to something about like video games i want to play those video games i'm like oh, that sounds fun the people are talking about it which feels like we're not doing our due diligence that we're not getting these people convinced that they need to watch these i movies. like that after we did that episode on the japanese filmmaker sato definitely a half dozen people who logged lolita vibrator torture on letterboxd as a direct result of this podcast and even that, though we're like don't watch it <laughs> and they're like I-, I need to watch it y- then. Y- you said that i said you know if you're interested check out lolita vibrator torture i take great pride like if i've accomplished anything in my life it's those six letterboxd logs well those are like a very specific ones too that it feels kind of like illicit if we're like ah yes this argentinian filmmaker <laughs> go watch his movie and we like refresh it'll be like <laughs> one person and we're like do they listen to the podcast no, i don't think so as per usual you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com by the way speaking of re-watching movies speaking of movies uh expanding in our minds as we get older and revisiting on our patreon we are once again diving into the filmography of abel ferrara you know him you love him the king of new york himself And we're talking about his late period film, Pasolini, about the last 24 hours in the life of Pier Paolo Pasolini's life. This is a movie that I wanted to talk about with Justin because I realized that over the years, it's come to mean something to me. Watching it over and over again, over the years, I've come to love it in a way that I didn't used to. And uh, maybe we could work through that. So to listen to that episode, you can check it out at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. And next week... The Australian journey continues because we're going to be talking about the only Australian filmmaker that me and Will know, George Miller. That's right. We were talking about maybe doing Paul Hogan, but then we thought, no, like, let's let's give the continent a bit of respect. You know that we've said that now people would be like, Hogan, Hogan. We will do Paul Hogan at some point. We'd have to watch like four Crocodile Dundee movies. That's counting the one where he plays himself. So yeah, George Miller. Also, we think... You've been a great audience. You've been a patient audience as we've gone through all these detours. I think I think we owe it to you folks to do a filmmaker who everyone likes, George Miller. We all love Lorenzo's Oil, and it's time to talk about it, finally. That's right. Happy Feet 2 or whatever. Wait, don't you want a jukebox musical, Will? I mean, maybe Happy Feet's good. I don't know. George Miller's a good filmmaker. I'm just not a... People love Babe 2, Pig in the City. I like Babe 2. Mm, I, I love the original Babe, which, let's be honest, was ghost-directed by George Miller. 
And I mean, all the movies he made, uh, Mad Max, one, two, three, four. There's another Mad Max movie coming too. Man, we'll see. They're shooting it. I'm putting it in air quotes. So folks, you know him, George Miller, Mad Max. He's the man. He's uh, one of- Which is of Eastwick. Yeah. One of one of Australia's favorite sons. We're going to talk about him next so, week. So until then, I'm Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. And as per usual, I would like to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Luke Gordnier, Amy Butterfield, A. Braun, Nathan Duckworth, Christopher Abernathy, Lee Calloway, Brooks464, Travis, Paul Gardner, and Tom Meager. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. Just a reminder to give a review to the Important Cinema Club on Apple Podcast and to check out the other fine podcasts we do, which include Will Sloan and Luke Savage's Michael and Us, and the many podcasts that I appear on, including the Bay Street Video Podcast with Mark Hansen, where he goes through all of the new and notable Blu-ray releases every week, the Very Fine Comic Book Podcast, where me and Mike Wood talk about a new comic book every week, and of course, no such thing at the bad movie where me colin cunningham and april atmansky you can find all these podcasts where all fine podcasts can be found so justin i'm going to tell you a little bit about my vacation um first of all Put another shrimp on the bobby i've been wrestling a crocodile that's not a knife this is like the fourth time i've made this joke on the podcast oh okay can i can i say i think i'm i think i can say this i spoke to a family friend okay who is in australia Paul Hogan. Uh, i wish it was paul hogan no i spoke to a family friend you'll love this i brought up the name yahoo Sirius. This family friend, his family knows the guy who produced all of Yahoo Sirius's movies. So this is the guy, and we talked about him in the episode, that had a breakup with Yahoo Sirius. And he's Correct. like, I don't know where he is. I am like two degrees of separation from that guy, which makes me like three degrees of separation from Yahoo Sirius. Sorry. Wow, I have so many questions for him. I mean, well, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe we'll find a way to talk to him. But... Uh, until then, I'll tell you a little bit more about my vacation. So listen, I had a layover in Los Angeles. I was just there for like 10 hours. So I did two things. First, I went to the Chinese theater, put my hand in some handprints. Which handprints did you put your hand in? Groucho. Uh, I put my foot in Jack Benny's handprint. I put my hand in uh, Kevin Smith's handprint. <laughs> Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes are there. One thing I want to say about the Chinese theater, I was impressed by how old so many of the things I like I kind of thought they cycled them in and out but it's like no they like Marion Davies is there Harold Lloyd Eddie Cantor is like right there also front and center when you get there Mr. Mel Gibson just just right fucking right fucking there Mel Gibson's second favorite son right even though he's not technically Australian so I, I don't know I was quite impressed that they kept so they keep so much of the old stuff around and I I kind of like that but I also went to Hollywood Forever Cemetery and the two gods of Poverty Row Edgar G Ulmer and William Bodine are in the same like mausoleum I visited both their graves which was an incredibly moving and powerful experience for and me. was Dancy like what the hell are you doing who <laughs> William she who? was uh moved by how moved I was you only needed one shot Bodine you only needed one like I saw a lot of the graves in Hollywood forever but the first one I looked for was Bodine who is on the map by the way they have his name on the map wow. as he should be and like I was just touching it and I was like oh my god I, I, I can't believe it I can't believe it's William Bodine like I was I was emotional I was on the verge of tears the ape man himself and Ulmer on his grave which he shares with Shirley Ulmer it says 
talent obliges. That's a great little uh, writing on that. Sums them up. And I also visited the grave of Paul Marco from the Ed Wood movies, the uh, who played uh, Kelton the cop. And appropriately, Paul Marco is at the very, very edge of the cemetery, like in the, in the <laughs> like he is up against the fence in the bottom right corner of the cemetery. Could not be a lower budget section. So I felt wow. I felt very. I, it was fitting in a way, you know, like Burt Reynolds has a bit has a bust for his head like right in the middle of the cemetery there's a big burt reynolds statue that's his grave but paul marco just on the edge and i found that yeah very powerful so what else have you been doing there uh, on your trip through australia have you had any movie sites? well uh, i had one other really important one uh in we, we were in new zealand oh wait i hear some music starting <laughs> i can't do it all so you were legally obliged to go visit Hobbiton, i visited right? Hobbiton, and let me tell you let me tell you it was very fun. Has Dancy actually seen those? Yeah, movies? no, Dancy likes them a lot. So I mean, that I would not, I would, I would not have gone on my own. Uh, you they, would not have gone on your they own. They mean yes. nothing to me, but I'm glad me I and went. Dancy can hang. Us Lord of the Rings. Heads. Uh, well, I'll just tell you, Hobbiton is really fun. It's really nicely maintained. Also, it's like you can tell why they picked it because it's in the middle of like just the drive in and out is well worth it. Beautiful rolling hills and uh, lovely farmland and just many, many sheep who all looked very nice. So for people that don't know, the original Hobbiton from the Lord of the Rings films was a temporary set. And when they had to bring it all down, they were like, oh, man, this stinks. So when they did the Hobbit movies, they said, we will build these permanent so then they can become a tourist attraction. <laughs> like, it was all in the design. They knew this was what it was going to be used and for. And very clever. Like, what were the activities that you could do Well, there? they take us on a tour. Uh, the, like, we go through the little Hobbit village, and we go up the mountain and down. Like, we go up to Bilbo's house. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Bilbo was actually a fairly wealthy Hobbit. Yes, I did know that. And the higher you get on the hill... The more like Tolkien thought about the class system in in Hobbiton, the higher you get on the hill, the wealthier the the Hobbit is. So Bilbo is near the top of the hill. Uh, so I saw I saw Bilbo's house. I saw you know various other <laughs> Hobbit houses. You know, like it, it's just like a, a forty five. I'm just curious. You're like, here are the Hobbit houses. All right, that's it. Get out of here. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Also, also above Bilbo's house, like on the top of the hill, there's a tree, which is a fake tree. They built a fake tree so that it would look like the illustration in the book. And that fake tree is still there. So there's a little there's a little peek into New Zealand culture for you. I wonder if they're like, does anybody like the Hobbit movies? No hands go up. Yeah, they're not that hot. Yeah, well, there's a lot of, you can get, you know, Martin Freeman bobbleheads and shit at the gift shop. And what else was there? I mean, I saw the, I saw the Sydney Opera House. So I, that's a movie thing because I saw- Yeah, Jackie Chan fought on that, right? From, from Bleeding Steel. Yeah. And that did not, the, believe me, I thought about that while I was there, that this is a shooting and location. And were you also in tears? You're like, oh my God. Jesse's <laughs> <laughs> like, what? That's where Jackie Chan fought in the very disappointing Bleeding Steel. Jackie Chan's like 85th best movie was shot here. Oh my God. I, I also thought about uh, Mr. Nice Guy because that was shot in the streets of sydney um so we oh, should have done a mr nice guy tour i know where like these are all the places that mr nice guy was shot. i was only in sydney for a day and a half though maybe next time 